This is part three of the Boudicca series. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, I strongly encourage you to do so as they flow in chronological order. Boudicca, the warrior queen of the Iceni, has now surrounded herself with allies and an army and has started her march toward a Roman city in Britain. The Romans are going to experience their first taste of revenge from the Britons for taking their lands, and it is going to be devastating. Let's see how it unfolds as the warriors of the rebellion, now under full steam, march toward the unimpressed and unprepared Romans. Hello and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. The march of the massive army of Britons toward Camelodunum is most likely to have taken a week or more. We don't know if the Britons attacked Roman forts that acted as outposts along the way, as Tacitus suggests, or if they instead bypassed them to head straight for the loot in the city. If the forts were attacked, it would have taken them a bit longer to reach their target. The point is that with this slow-moving army of soldiers, townspeople, carts, and provisions, the word would have gotten out about the impending attack. When the Romans caught wind of the rebels heading towards the capital, riders were sent out to ask for help from other Roman forces stationed around the territory. Dispatches were sent to the 9th Legion up north in Lincoln, the fellow city of Londinium, and to Governor Paulinus and the legions stationed on the west side of Britain in Wales. Boudicca's army continued to gain strength as they marched the 40 miles toward Camelodunum. The force from the Trinovantes had a plan to have their warriors meet up with Boudicca's before the attack on the city. The troop strength of Boudicca's army could have grown to the size of 10,000 warriors at this point, but we don't have the exact numbers. The thing was, the Romans really had no idea at this point how large of an enemy force there was from the Britons, only that they were heading towards their city. The pot of war that was brewing was starting to boil over. There were mixed emotions in Camelodunum. Small uprisings had been dealt with before. Why should this one be any different? Surely Roman forces could muster and come to the city's assistance if there was any real danger. The hostile areas would be on the frontier, not anywhere near the capital city. It was supposed to be more peaceful here. After all, this is where legionnaire veterans came to retire. It was safe here, right? News of the impending attack first reached the city of Londinium, where the procurator Catus Decianus took action by sending a few soldiers to assist. The thing is, he only sent a small band of 200 men to help in the defense of Camelodunum, 
Remember, this is the man that had started the whole rebellion with his rampant abuse of the Asini and his mistreatment of Boudicca and the royal family of the Asini. He may have thought that the uprising was not a serious threat, or there may just not have been any more available troops that could be given up for the other city. One thing to note, though, is that he didn't go with the soldiers himself to lead them and help defend the Roman capital in Britain. He wasn't going to be a hero who would courageously lead his troops forward in defense of his citizens. Once again, this guy's poor character bleeds through. During the time between the notice of the impending attack and the 200 extra soldiers arriving Camelodunum, there was surprisingly no haste to build some type of defense around the city. We also have no information to indicate that a formal evacuation plan was executed to allow the non-combatants safe passage from the city. Since many of the city dwellers were the retired veterans of Roman legions, they would have known how to construct palisades and ramparts around the city, or at least set up some form of traps for the oncoming enemy. Yet, nothing was built. No preparations were made. This could also be due to the lack of leadership as the only head of state, the procurator Catus Decianus, was still relaxing in the fellow city of Londinium. There may have also been a confidence that the veterans and additional supporting soldiers could easily handle any rabble that the Britons could toss their way. Around this time, news reached the 9th Legion stationed even farther north, past the homelands of the Iceni. Upon hearing the request for help, Petalus Serialis, the leader of the Roman Legion, immediately gathered as many men as he could muster and set out to reinforce the capital. He was expected to have around 5,000 to 6,000 men. Although setting out right away, they had a long march ahead of them. They would have to make haste southeast through the Britain tribal lands of the Asini and maybe the Catavolunai, depending on which route they took, and then through much of the Trinovantes territory where the capital city itself was located. The relief force that the citizens of Camelodunum had been waiting for was on their way. But as things turned out, it would be too late. Boudicca and the army of Britons had made it to the outskirts of the city. Boudicca's army merged together with the Trinovantes warriors at a rally point to the northwest of the city. With the two armies now merged, the soldiers turned to face their prize, the Roman capital city of Britain. The warrior culture of the Britons was now about to be unleashed. For some 17 years, it had been suppressed but now they were free to strike back at their oppressor and drive them out of their lands. All of that pent-up anger was set to be let out. No mercy was to be given. Boudicca and her army were out for blood and for revenge. The sheer number of Britons that had arrived to attack the city was staggering. The people of Camelodunum were caught off guard. After coming together at the city's edge, Boudicca's troops charged into the city. Looking at it from today, 
The ruins of the gateway to the city, which were just arches over the main street, wide enough for a few people to go through at the same time, can be seen in the city of Colchester today. This was likely the area that the Britons burst through as they dispatched any Roman resistance. The people of the city fled to the most protected structure in the city, the Temple of Claudius. The structure was 75 feet wide, or 23 meters, and 105 feet long, or 32 meters. The stone walls were around 10 feet thick, or 3 meters. This was the Romans' last stand in the city, their Alamo, their Thermopylae, their Saragari. In another point in history during the 1800s in the United States with the Battle of the Alamo, it eventually got to the point where their only chance of survival was a relief force from Sam Houston's army that might be able to for a possible relief force from the Roman 9th Legion of the North to arrive. With the remaining townspeople holed up, barricaded in the temple, the Britons ransacked and looted the rest of the city. Anyone left in the streets would have been killed or captured to most likely be used as a ritual sacrifice later. The perfect grid-like road pattern of the Roman city designers meant that there were no side alleyways or twisted network of streets where one could hide until it was all over. After the place had been thoroughly looted, Boudicca's troops set about igniting every house in the city in flames. But that wasn't enough to quench their thirst for being wronged. Any areas that would not easily burn on their own had Britons add combustible materials inside the buildings and set them ablaze to make sure that there would be nothing left of the city. With the walls of the temple made of thick stone and plaster and the Britons having no siege equipment meant that there was no easy way for Boudicca's troops to gain entry to the last of the city's buildings with the final survivors. The 700 or so soldiers that had been left in the city for its defense were no match for the thousands of Britons that had descended onto them. For two whole days, the survivors in the temple huddled together inside in fear, waiting with their last bit of hope for the 9th Legion to arrive and save them. Meanwhile, Petalus Serialis and his men of the 9th Hispania were marching in a long column suspected to be over a mile long, heading as fast as they could on the three-day journey to Camulodunum. Although we don't know the exact details of what happened, we have a general idea of how the next event may have occurred. As the Romans were marching, all of a sudden a growing rumbling noise is heard. The soldiers' eyes dart around. What? What is that? Suddenly, two-man chariots carrying fierce war-painted warriors appear in their line of sight. The wooden chariots, pulled by two horses each, start swarming around the line of Roman infantry. The sound of the horses' hooves stomping and the wooden wheels with iron wheel rims spinning, with the Britons yelling war cries. It all created a cacophony of sounds that struck fear into the spines of the Romans. The Romans had to form up, but which way should they face? 
The enemy was circling around them, but not yet engaging. Which way should they move? Where would the enemy attack be? How would they defend against it? A young Roman legionnaire looked over at his leader for orders on what to do next. And just then he hears a whoosh, thwack, as a javelin thrown by one of the Britain's charioteers strikes his brother-in-arms standing right next to him. Shields up! A rain of javelins comes streaming down onto the Roman troops from the circling chariots. It all is happening so fast, there wasn't even enough time to get into a protective formation. Looking out at the chariots, they seem to start to peel off and spread out. And through the gaps formed as they fall back, fierce foot soldiers of the warriors of Britain emerge. The barbarians charge the Roman column. Many of them have a spear and shield or longsword and come at the Romans screaming taunts in a foul tongue as they charge. Most Britons have no armor, only leather coverings, and some even go shirtless, filled with rage and with total disregard for their own protection. Their bodies and faces are covered in a thick blue war paint etched in circular line patterns across their skin. Some of them have their light-colored hair sticking straight up in mohawks. The first wave of Britons crashes into the Roman column with devastating effectiveness. The Romans were not able to use their pilums, which is a Roman javelin, or form up in time before the attack. The legionnaires were tired after marching for days while their enemy was refreshed and proud to be fighting on their homeland. As the chariots pulled away and stopped to make room for the first wave of infantry, the men on them hopped off the rear and also charged into the Romans in another wave. The Roman lines were broken before they were even formed. There were so many of them. Where did they come from? Petalus Serialis and members of his cavalry unit tried to assist along the Roman line, but looking out over the long column being split into smaller and smaller patches that were being chopped away by Britons, they knew there was no hope. Desperately breaking through the swarm of Britons, some of the cavalry as Petalus Serialis himself were able to get out of the massacre and ride off into the distance. Glancing back... Serialis saw the last remnants of his once proud legion being cut to pieces by the Britons in a complete massacre from this surprise attack. He took what few men he had left that survived the ordeal and hightailed it back to the area known today as Longthorpe in Peterborough, where they constructed a small fort to try and hold out if attacked again. In this attack on the relief force moving towards Camelodunum, the 9th Legion was annihilated and became what is known as combat ineffective. Their only shot at survival was to hold up and try to defend their own lives until hostilities ended. We do not know for certain that this force was part of Boudicca's army that was sent on this mission or if there were other tribes that joined in on the rebellion. The blue war paint which was used by the Britons before battle was actually a special blue dye made from the plant woad, spelled W-O-A-D. Although this looks cool in movies where they copy the imagery, such as in the film Braveheart, 
the paint actually had a practical purpose in that it has antiseptic properties from the native plant that would aid in the event of a cut or stab wound. Many of the warriors of Britain were also known to use lime in their hair as an ancient form of hair gel to allow them to create menacing, mohawk-like hairstyles. The lime would also bleach the hair to a lighter color, making them appear to the Mediterranean Romans with generally darker hair even more barbaric. From a realistic perspective, it is most likely that the chariots of the Britons were used in the manner I described here rather than what you see in many movies and common folklore. In modern movies, such as The Eagle from 2011, chariots are depicted as having razor-sharp metal sides on the sides of the wheels, and they would drive through the enemy lines, cutting them down. In reality, there was no evidence of this with the Britons. Driving into a Roman formation with chariots may have killed a few, but would have been a death sentence for the men on the chariots as they got bogged down in the middle of a patch of armored legionnaires. There are no coins from ancient Britain that show sides present on the images of the chariots. The vehicles were really used as platforms to throw javelins and to increase mobility for the infantry. But enough from me. Let's see how the man himself, Julius Caesar, described how the chariots of the Britons were used in his writing on the Gaelic War. I quote, In chariot fighting, the Britons begin by driving all over the field, hurling javelins, and generally the terror inspired by the horses and the noise of the wheels are sufficient to throw their opponent's ranks into disorder. Then, after making their way between the squadrons of their own cavalry, they jump down from the chariot and engage on foot. In the meantime, their charioteers retire a short distance from the battle and place the chariots in such a position that their masters, if hard-pressed by numbers, have an easy means of retreat to their own lines. Thus, they combine the mobility of cavalry with the staying power of infantry and by daily training and practice, they attain such proficiency that even on a steep incline, they are able to control the horses at full gallop, and to check and turn them in a moment. They can run along the chariot pole, stand on the yoke, and get back into the chariot as quick as lightning. End quote. Here, we have seen some of the tactics that the Britons used during the rebellion. With the only close Roman fighting force wiped out, the villagers left in the temple of Claudius and Camelodunum had no hope of rescue. They were trapped in the temple for two days, and even though they had survived this long, the Britons had discovered a way to break into the building. The Britons had no siege equipment, nothing like a battering ram or a catapult. Since the walls of the temple were almost 10 feet thick, it would have taken the Britons some time to dig through them to attack the people inside. As the Britons had the temple surrounded and their thirst for blood was still great, they discovered a weakness in the building. The roof was made of traditional Roman tiles. The Britons helped their compatriots climb onto the roof and they then began smashing through the tiles. 
It must have been absolutely terrifying for the people inside the temple. The people you thought of as grotesque barbarians had ransacked your entire city and now had you cornered in this tiny confined space of existence as they broke through from above. You would be at the mercy of an enemy that wanted nothing more than to tear you to pieces. Some say that once the roof was breached, the Britons stormed in and butchered all those inside. Other sources indicate that once the Britons gained access, they managed to set the interior on fire and the whole temple was caught up in a great flame, roasting all those inside. Ugh. Either way, it didn't turn out well for the last residents of Camelodunum. Boudicca and her troops systematically set every building ablaze in the city and now the last structure, the temple, was also engulfed in flames. In exacting their revenge, the Britons made sure that the entire city burned to the ground. Plumes of smoke rose into the air as the Britons moved out of the city and onward to their next target, carts chock full of looted merchandise from the city. Their campaign of death was not yet over. From a historical perspective, there have been about nine decades of archaeological excavations in the modern city of Colchester where the ancient city of Camelodunum existed. Some of the findings are interesting, considering the story that we have been told so far by the Roman historians. There is a uniform layer of earth that is stained red that is the same height in excavations all around town, leading to confirmation of the burning of the city in 60 to 61 AD. Although the Iceni were supposedly the main tribe that was engaged in the sacking of the city, there are only a few items such as bronze rings that were used by the Iceni to decorate horse reins that were found at the location. This does, however, correlate with the time period set forth for the Iceni's attack of Camelodunum. One of the most interesting aspects, I thought, was that there were no bodies found in the excavations from the burnt-out city. If Tacitus and Dio both claimed the people of the city were systematically executed, where were all the bodies? This may have just been that they haven't been found yet, there might have been mass graves elsewhere, or the ravages of time have contaminated the excavations. The Britons were also known to be big on ritual sacrifices under the supervision of the Druids. The people that may have been left alive in the city may have been taken to another area for a ritual sacrifice to the ancient people's gods. The people of Camelodunum seem to be very much Romanesque in what has been discovered from the remains of the city. The buildings were set up in the traditional Roman manner. Items such as a Roman-style couch were found, and there are a ton of foreign foods that were imported into the city. The veterans that resided there may have been more accustomed to the foods from the Mediterranean than the traditional foods of Northwest Europe that a normal inhabitant of Britain would consume. Flax seeds, figs, plums, dates, lentils, beans, and coriander were all found in the ruins. All of these foodstuffs were imported into the city, 
And they, of course, also included one of the centerpieces of goods from the Roman economy, olive oil. The sacking of Camelodunum was an attack directly on the culture that the Romans were trying to infect onto the land of Britain. And now we have the army of Boudicca on the march again, high from their victory, and this time with the taste of blood from the ransacked capital, they were like sharks looking for their next target. Looking out over the terrain of ancient Britain, they picked out a ripe one next. To the southwest of the now-destroyed Camelodunum was another city dripping with Roman culture and people, another target for them to focus their revenge. Boudicca and her army started the march toward the city of Londinium, which is known as modern-day London. At this time, Londinium had just gotten its foot off the ground. Its strategic location along the Thames River meant it was a perfect area for a settlement, which had easy access to a waterway for transportation and trade. Trade flourished throughout the small Roman city that was established, and migrants from other parts of the Roman Empire started to come to the new land to sell their wares and experience what this new territory had to offer. Too bad all the Britons in Boudicca's army wanted to offer them was a swift death. The economy was so successful that the city continued rapid growth to the point that it was bulging at the edges, sprawling out into what was once the countryside. It grew so fast that the standard of building outer walls or defenses along the city lines, the idea of the customary defense of the city was negated. With the city growing so fast, the townspeople felt that building walls would only stunt their growth and be ineffective as many inhabitants would soon be living outside of the very walls that were meant to protect them. This lackluster attitude on protection would be their undoing. With Boudicca's forces leaving Camelodunum smoldering with plumes of smoke emanating from the area, word spread fast about the fate of the city. The news changed the mindset of Suetonius Paulinus. This was no tiny uprising. This was an organized and powerful rebellion. This had now endangered his position as governor of Roman Britain. The Roman capital had just been sacked. An army was known to be approaching the next Roman city of Londinium, and there was a chance that this rebellion could kick the Roman forces completely out of Britain if it was not quelled early. How would he explain to Emperor Nero that a woman and her band of barbarians were able to overcome the mighty Roman Empire? The Romans didn't think highly about barbarians, and especially the idea of the force being led by a woman, which was against Roman social practices. Paulinus knew he had to make haste back to eastern Britain and engage Boudicca and her army in the field of battle to prevent this from becoming a complete disaster for Rome. How would it have been for a governor of Alaska to meet with the President of the United States and go, oh yeah, I kind of lost the territory of Alaska to an uprising, and I was wondering if you knew of any uh, other lines of work you could, you know, slip me into now? News of the attack on Camelodunum 
probably took about a day for a rider on horseback to deliver to Londinium. Upon hearing the news, Catus Decianus was struck with fear. Remember, this is the guy that had started the whole uprising with his cruel treatment of the Iceni at the time of Prasutagus's death, which included the beating of Boudicca, the rape of her daughters, and the demanding of large sums of loans to be repaid by the Iceni tribe. When the loads couldn't be repaid, he had looted the village of the now-deceased king Prasutagus. So this guy, now hearing the news that the sister Roman city was destroyed and the closest Roman legion, the 9th legion, was wiped out, showed his true colors. He took his bodyguard force that remained, after earlier sending those 200 troops to Camelodunum, which were destroyed, he took what was left of his guard and deserted his post and left the city to the fate of the barbarians. He went down to the dock, hopped in a ship, and sped across the English Channel to Gaul, where he could cower away from the rampaging Britons. Unfortunately for Boudicca, the main prize for her mission of revenge was now out of her reach, but this also left her next target even more vulnerable. With the procurator fleeing to the European mainland, there was no leadership left in the city to organize a plan to deal with the oncoming rival force. Boudicca now had this massive army that had continued gathering troops after the first two victories in the campaign, and more of the local population began to believe they had a chance of forcing the Romans out of Britain. More and more warriors drew up arms with Boudicca as they realized that this rebellion did have a chance to kick out their oppressors. The governor of Roman Britain, Paulinus, knew the situation had turned bleak. With the 9th Legion taken out of action, he now had a half to two-thirds of the whole Roman fighting force left in Britain with him on the western side in Wales. He sent out a rider with a message to the troops at the southern base of Wales to tell them to pack up and meet with his infantry on the march back toward Londinium. There were about 4,000 troops from the 2nd Augusta Legion that were stationed at the other base, keeping the southern Britain tribes at bay. Suetonius' troops would continue on their path along the Roman-built road towards Londinium, and then the southern forces could meet up with them along the way. Suetonius then took the risky action of separating his cavalry force from his infantry. With the cavalry, he dashed ahead through enemy territory to Londinium to see what the situation was like there in person. The risk is that he left his own infantry at a higher risk of ambush by taking away the cavalry. This increased the potential for another ambush, like what happened to the 9th Legion on their march south from Lincoln now that he had divided his forces. Suetonius figured that with the supporting troops coming up to meet them from southern Wales, his men would be able to survive while he went ahead to assess the situation on the front line. The city of Londinium, also known as modern-day London, differed from the sacked capital of Camulodunum. While the capital had war veterans and administrators from the Roman Empire, 
this city was comprised mainly of merchants and tradesmen going about their business and selling their wares. The population was estimated to be between 30,000 and 70,000 inhabitants. This was a center for commerce for Britain and was a strong connecting point for trade to go through the River Thames to the ocean and to the rest of the Roman Empire. Roman historian Strabo also listed some of the exports from this thriving city, including gold, silver, tin, iron, hunting dogs, and slaves. Many of the inhabitants were merchants that had come from other parts of the world that were controlled by the Romans to make a new life here and sell their products and services in a new market. From archaeological evidence, we have found pottery created by Roman Caius Albicus, which was stamped with his seal of workmanship. The artisan decided to move from his home of what is now modern-day Switzerland and set up shop in the new lands in Britain. There, he was able to sell his wares in the thriving town. Other evidence shows shops from glassblowers and engravers of precious stones that were present. When Suetonius arrived with his cavalry to see the situation in the town, he realized he had a tough decision to make. He was informed procurator Catus Decianus had taken his small fighting force and fled the territory. And in his absence, the town had not constructed any defenses to the oncoming threat. He heard the rumors that Boudicca's force had swelled in size from the already large army that had sacked Camelodunum. There was no pool of retired war veterans that had made Londinium their home, as had been the case in the capital and could aid in the potential defense. And the many people that were there were mostly tradesmen, and he would not even have enough provisions to outfit them as fighting units. Suetonius faced a tough decision that had not been faced by a Roman leader in his position for maybe a hundred years going back to the wars with Caesar and Vercingetorix. He had to decide if he was going to abandon a defenseless Roman city in the face of an oncoming enemy. Fighting in this situation might lead to the last Roman forces being wiped out in defense of the city and could leave the rest of Roman Britain to the whim of Boudicca's rebellion. Strategically, there was just no easy way to defend the city in the time that he had available. Even if his soldiers were put on a forced march to get there in time, there were too many entry points to the city and not enough time to construct a fort or significant defensive barrier. His force would be outnumbered and would be cut off from any other support. The scale of balance was too far tilted in Boudicca's favor. For a Roman army, the march from Camelodunum to Londinium would have been only a few days, but for Boudicca, it probably would have taken longer. She would have had to pry the troops away from looting in Camelodunum and get them to move on to the next battle. Her force, which was larger than what the Romans could muster, was also bogged down by carts and families traveling with the warriors. Still, there wasn't enough time for the Romans to establish a solid defense of Londinium. Suetonius made the strategic decision to abandon the defense of the city in the hope that they could engage the Britons in another area on better terms. 
After his decision was relayed to the city, he and his small detachment of cavalry left to meet up again with the infantry on its way from Wales. The city was shocked by the governor's decision. This was the mighty Roman Empire. How could they just leave one of their cities defenseless? There was also no organized evacuation of the city. After the announcement, all of the able-bodied people that could travel and wanted out of the city started heading out with their belongings into the countryside as refugees. A short time later, Boudicca's army descended on the unprotected city. With no resistance, the Britons simply had their way with the city and looted and killed the inhabitants that were left behind. But that is not all. Dio captures some of the brutality of the sack of the city in his work Histories, Book 62. Here is the really graphic quote. Quote, The most vile and inhuman atrocity committed by their captors was the following. They strung up naked the noblest and most refined women, and then cut off their breasts, which they sewed into their mouths, in order to make the victims appear to be eating them. Afterwards, they skewered the women on sharp sticks run lengthwise through the entire body. End quote. Dio also makes reference to acts being done as sacrifices to the gods of the Britons, and in particular, the goddess of victory. Now, even back in ancient times with crude warfare and horrible atrocities being committed, the story that Dio puts forth is still shocking in its irregular brutality. Keep in mind that these Roman histories were stories that would be orated for the amusement of crowds and were most likely embellished to make the barbarians appear even more gruesome and opposite to the idea of Roman civilization. After the people were all wiped out, the Britons proceeded with the same systematic destruction of the city of Londinium, just as they had done with Camelodunum. Fires were set and orders were given to burn the city to the ground. In the city of London today, if you dig down deep enough, you can find the archaeological evidence of this destruction. There is literally a scorched red layer of daub in the earth that dates back to the time period of Boudicca's sack of the city. The temperatures were so hot that the very earth where the city lay became scarred. Glass turned into its molten form, and some areas reached up to 1,000 degrees. Although most of the city ended up burning, there were some areas that were not completely destroyed. It seems that the troops were not as enthusiastic about burning empty houses this time as they were in Camelodunum. Maybe this was because treasure had been removed from the city when people fled, and there wasn't as much incentive for them to go house to house setting fires, when what they were really after was treasure. Maybe, as they were warriors, they were really just itching for a fight, and didn't take as much care in having to do the tedious work of demolition of a second city. After the quick taking of the city, it might have made sense for Boudicca to send troops to try and catch up to the fleeing Suetonius and try and trap him before he got away. After all, they did have chariots that could catch up to the Roman governor and his men. 
But telling troops rampaging around, killing and destroying the people and buildings of the city to suddenly drop everything and head out for a long march to a potential battle may have been a bit difficult. A lot of the warriors were not only there for the revenge, but were also there for the potential treasures they could obtain through looting. Part of the reason they didn't like the Romans was the excessive taxes. Now they had a chance to take back some of that stolen wealth. This reminds me of a scene in the classic World War I movie, Lawrence of Arabia. The British officer Lawrence had united the Arab tribes together to fight against the Ottoman Turks. But after derailing a train and defeating the Turkish guards, the Arab allies went about sacking all of the valuables from the train. Many of them then proceeded to abandon the fight and march off back to their homes after having obtained treasure, which may have been the real reason why they were willing to fight. In the same way, Boudicca had to keep the consortium of different tribes and chieftains together by promising more and more revenge and loot from the Romans. The looting was their reward for fighting alongside Boudicca and risking their lives. There was also the risk of dividing her forces and enabling the enemy to obtain a victory. And it seemed to make sense to keep their forces together where they greatly outnumbered any Roman army that could be assembled onto the field. For this and other reasons, the force of Britain stayed in the city rather than trying to run down the fleeing Roman governor. That does it for part three of the Boudicca series. In the next episode in the series, we will be getting into the change in tactics that Boudicca and her army take when deciding on the next target. The rebellion is becoming a huge threat to the idea of a Roman-controlled Britain. Gaius Suetonius Paulinus, the Roman governor of Britain, dashes across the country and maneuvers his troops to confront Boudicca and her army. Can the Romans mount a defense to finally thwart the massive rebellion? Stay tuned for our next episode to see what happens. Thank you for listening to the Spark History Show. Subscribe in your favorite podcast directory or follow us on Twitter at Spark History to find out as soon as the next part in the series is released. Check out the website sparkhistory.com to discover our other episodes and additional content. And as always, have a great day.